The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome back to The Great Myths, and in this episode, as with all the others, I keep saying it, uh, this is one of my favorite stories. Uh, This is the story of the Welsh poet and prophet and seer Taliesin, and for me, I first heard the name Taliesin in connection with the artist's colony, and uh, uh, I believe in Wisconsin, that Frank Lloyd Wright built and that uh, burned down. I think the first iteration of it burned down. And um, it was a while before I came to the actual story of Taliesin. And what I'll be reading from tonight is an an incredible book, uh, translation by Patrick K. Ford, The Mabinogi and Other Medieval Welsh Tales, and the tale of Taliesin, and the tale of Gwion Bach, that serves sort of as a prologue to it. This is included in the subtitle of Other Medieval Welsh Tales. If you ask me, uh, the cover price is worth it just for the tale of Gwianbach and the tale of Taliesin. And I just wanted to read for a second from the introduction because Patrick Ford uh, sums it up so well. And this is how he uh, introduces the uh, the story. So you have the tale of Guyanbach first as prologue, then the tale of Taliesin as the, as the story of the prophet proper. And you can almost imagine, and you'll see it when I read from it, that at one point they could have very easily been two separate stories, and that it only took one moment, one paragraph, one little hinge, by someone who knew what the hell they were doing, uh, who knew very well what they were doing to bring them together. And it says here, the first section deals with a witch, a magical brew, shape-shifting, and it is set in the days of the legendary King Arthur. The second part, however, has few of those qualities, the first part being Guyanbach and the second part being the tale of Taliesin. There is some magic there, to be sure, but the setting is historical, and a good deal of attention is paid to customs and manners of the court. It is peopled with bards and heralds, nobles and ladies, and is motivated by economic misfortune and the consequences of unbridled pride and boasting. While the two parts are chronologically consecutive in the narrative, they are worlds apart in setting and perhaps in audience. So again, it's not hard to imagine that these were once two completely separate stories. 
that a great master has brought together. Uh, Patrick Ford goes on to say, there can be little doubt that the tale of Taliesin is very old, and yet none of it, none of it, turns up in any Welsh manuscript before the 16th century. The earliest recorded version appears to be that found in a manuscript by Ellis Griffith sometime in the middle of the 16th century, and that is the version that we are reading from tonight. Ellis Griffith, who will constantly be interrupting the story and saying, I'm copying this down, uh, but I don't believe it, but I'm going to keep copying it down. Um, yeah, Patrick Ford says this here. Where, let me find the beginning of the sentence. Uh, he comments on his text frequently, sometimes referring in a self-conscious way to the story or, quote, the opinion of the people, sometimes objecting to the impiety of the story or of its irrationality, or doubting its veracity with such comments as, quote, if the story can be believed, and, quote, Indeed, in my opinion, it is very difficult for anyone to believe that this tale is true. The total effect is very different from anything found in other tales in this collection. And on the one hand, it is about uh, someone who wonders why, why the story is this way, but admits that it's so powerful that they have to keep it. On the other hand, Since this is the version of the story that we have, it seems to work rather well. They're not copying straight from something else, it doesn't seem like. They're not copying it straight without making any changes. They're inserting their comments and appear to be editing some of the poems as they go. And yet all of the comments seem to work very well together. It is a comment on storytelling, if you want to think about it, um, in the... Uh, in the, the lingo of our day, it is a very uh, meta story, commenting on storytelling while telling the story of someone who uses words extremely well. And, and so what happens after is that uh, in the tale of Guyan Bach, a little boy named Guyan Bach is, steals a bit of wisdom from a witch and they go off together. Uh, the witch chases after him and they change shapes until, as it happens, uh, he turns back into a child again and is found and is named Taliesin because of his, uh, what is it, his golden brow? Is that right? His radiant forehead. Behold the radiant forehead. And it is this child who ends up going to the court in these courtly scenes uh, to impress king, noble, ladies, and all of the adult poets in the room. And I just wanted to make one point about that, and then we will just get to the reading itself. And that is that there is a great uh, genre of stories that are about children doing these kinds of things. Um, there's the story of the Buddha, which I think, uh, which I think I've mentioned before, who stands up, who after, after he's born, apparently stands up, is already walking, and goes to the four corners of the room and praises himself. He's already able to talk and to walk. There's obviously the story of, uh, of Jesus going to the temple and 
teaching everybody there what is actually going on. And probably my favorite version comes from um, comes from Hinduism, and that is where, and of course, of course, I have forgotten the name, and I do not want to get the name wrong. Um, I don't want to forget it because it's an incredible story. Um, yes, Krishna, where uh, the young Krishna, who has, I guess, uh, taken on a, uh, a new life as a child, and his mother comes around one day because she sees the little child Krishna eating mud, and she goes to try and scold him, stop eating mud, don't do that, etc. But when she opens his mouth to clean out his mouth and looks inside of his mouth, what does she see? She sees the entire universe, and uh, she passes out, and she wakes up, and I think it's she wakes up and she doesn't remember what she saw, all the rest of it. But that seems to be a very important kind of story that we need to tell every now and then. And especially in the case of Taliesin, what we have is, uh, what you might say is the picture of mature innocence, if that's the right word, um, unsullied maturity, unsullied innocence combined coming to a place that is just fraught with empty ritual and empty bureaucracy, which is the court, where you have yes-men and retainers and all of these things going on, and it's just a lot of empty formalities, and the child comes in and upends all of these things. And it's very wonderful, and at least to me, very moving how that happens in the context of comedy as well, and in the context of, uh, of a frame story of getting somebody out of prison and protecting a wife's uh, reputation and all of these other things. And the last thing I'll mention, and then we'll get to the story, is just that um, in many of the Celtic stories, the feast is the place where people uh, have a chance to, to brag and argue. I mention uh, later on, because I recorded the readings of the book, reading of the story uh, before I did the introduction here. I mentioned later on the idea of the kinds of Christmas movies or holiday-themed movies that we have nowadays, where they are excuses for disparate people, even if they're family, of finally getting together and the either hilarity or tragedy or just noise that ensues. But uh, in the myths as well, that's the kind of thing that happens. It's in the Norse myths. There's a a wonderful Celtic story called Breed Crew's Feast, where everything just uh, eventually turns into a riot. Uh, Gawain and the Green Knight begins on Christmas Day, when the challenge is made and where all these uh, visitors are at Arthur's court. And in many cases, the, the people who are doing the bragging, the ones who are eating all the food, and the ones who want the the, what I think is called the, the champion's portion, um, are the warriors, are the, the martial guys, the guys puffing their chests out and doing all of that stuff. You would imagine them riding noisy pickup trucks around these days. And I don't want to say that there is a development from one to the other or that 
the story of Taliesin is even a reaction against that kind of story. But it's nice that in this version of that story, where the feast is gathered, where all kinds of different people come together, that it isn't the warrior who gets all the attention and one-ups everyone. Uh, in this case, um, it is the poet, it is the bard, it is the prophet, and we uh, would do well to just nod our heads and grin and recognize it when that kind of story comes up. So here we go. So the tale of Gwion Bach to start with. And as usual, I will do my best with the names, in this case, the Welsh names. This is how it begins. In the days when Arthur began to rule, there was a nobleman living in the land now called Penlyn. His name was Taget Foel, and his patrimony, according to the story, was the body of water that is known today as Lilin Taget. And the story says that he had a wife, and that she was named Caridwen. She was a magician, says the text, and learned in the three arts, magic, enchantment, and divination. The text also says that Tegid and Caridwen had a son whose looks, shape, and carriage were extraordinarily odious. They named him Morfran, which means great crow, but in the end they called him Avgadu, utter darkness. These are his parents, not the neighbors calling him this. Utter darkness, on account of his gloomy appearance. Because of his wretched looks, his mother grew very sad in her heart, for she saw clearly that there was neither manner nor means for her son to win acceptance amongst the nobility, unless he possessed qualities different from his looks. And so, to encompass this matter, she turned her thoughts to the contemplation of her arts, to see how best she could make him full of the spirit of prophecy and a great prognosticator of the world to come. After laboring long in her arts, she discovered that there was a way of achieving such knowledge by the special properties of the earth's herbs and by human effort and cunning. This was the method choose and gather certain kinds of the earth's herbs on certain days and hours, put them all in a cauldron of water, and set the cauldron on the fire. It had to be kindled continually in order to boil the cauldron day and night for a year and a day. In that time, she would see ultimately that three drops containing all the virtues of the multitude of herbs would spring forth on whatever man those three drops fell, she would see that he would be extraordinarily learned in various arts and full of the spirit of prophecy. Furthermore, she would see that all the juice of those herbs, except the three aforementioned drops, would be as powerful a poison as there could be in the world, and that, would, and that it would shatter the cauldron and spill the poison across the land. And so we see a connection here between uh, 
the life and the talents given to somebody. Not only is it a matter of chance, but if you are able to harness it somehow, it is also tied to the yearly round, a night uh, of a year and a day, and that is that it is both a poison and a blessing, and that this mother who feels deeply for her son, I never, all the times I've read the story, I've never felt uh, affection for the mother until now, and I think that is because uh, all the other times I've read the story, I was before I was a parent myself. And so I feel for this mother who, on the one hand, admits that her son uh, isn't the best looking, and she calls him by a name that means utter darkness. But uh, on the other hand, um, in the end, she wants him to succeed. She feels sorry for him. And it also seems significant that we don't hear about the father at all anymore. It is the mother who wants to uh, save her son's future, as it were. And so here we are. And there is one more little insert from the author here. Indeed, this tale is illogical and contrary to faith and piety, but as before. He keeps wanting to insert that. Uh, he doubts the veracity of the story, but he somehow sees the importance of the story or the power of the story that makes him still want to uh, put it down to transmit it into the future. There is something about it that he wants to keep for the future. The text of the story shows clearly that she collected great numbers of the earth's herbs and that she put them into a cauldron of water and put it on the fire. The story says that she engaged an old blind man to stir the cauldron and to tend it, but it says nothing of his name any more than it says who the author of this tale was. However, it does name the lad who was leading this blind man, and the name of the lad was Guyan Bach, whom Caridwin set to stoking the fire under the cauldron, and right away we can see uh, where this is going. Uh, in this way, each kept to his own job, kindling the fire, tending the cauldron, and stirring it, with Caridwen keeping it full of water and herbs until the end of a year and a day. At that time, Caridwen took hold of Morfran, her son, and stationed him close to the cauldron to receive the drops when their hour to spring forth from the pot arrived. Then Caridwen set her haunches down to rest. But of course she falls asleep. The power of sleep to ruin all things and the connection of sleep to death to ruin all things. She was asleep at the moment the three marvelous drops sprung from the cauldron. And they fell upon Guyan Bach, who had shoved Morfran out of the way. That is a detail I also forgot. Um, I always remembered the story as uh, the kid Guyan Bach doing it of his own volition and waiting for the drops, but I had forgotten that he shoved the kid out of the way, and it's almost, uh, you can almost imagine the Disney cartoon version of the two kids see the drops fly up into the air, and uh, there's the slow motion fall of the drops, and the kids are knocking each other around to see who will get them. Um, they sprung from the cauldron and they fell upon Guyan Bach, who had shoved Morfran out of the way. Uh, 
Thereupon the cauldron uttered a cry, and, from the strength of the poison, it shattered. This woke Caradrin from her sleep, like one crazed, and she saw Guyanbach. He was filled with wisdom, and he could perceive that her mood was so poisonous that she would utterly destroy him as soon as she discovered how he had deprived her son of the marvelous drops. So he took to his heels and fled. But as soon as Caridwin recovered from her madness, she examined her son, who told her the full account of how Guyanbach drove him away from where she had stationed him. And here, uh, the event I'm about to describe here uh, is common from many stories of transformation. It seems to be that if people uh, are able to transform themselves into animals, into the shapes of animals, for whatever reason, however this began uh, back thousands of years ago when these stories first began uh, to be told and to be thought up, uh, the chase was a part of it. People change themselves into animals and they chase each other. And usually they are changed into animals as a result of something that they should not have done. Uh, anger and fear are at the heart of these kinds of transformations. If you remember the story of Ovid that I recently read in an episode of Ted Hughes, where Terius and Philomela, uh, where Terius rapes Philomela and she gets revenge on him and Philomela and her sister kill the son of Terius and feed his remains to him in a stew. And when Terius realizes this, he chases them from the house. And in chasing them, uh, Philomela becomes a nightingale, Terius becomes another bird, and her sister becomes another one as well. And that is what happens. In one of the first episodes I read about on the Celtic myths, you had the two pig keepers uh, in Ireland who were wondering who was the better pig keeper, and then whose master is better. It goes on and on, a bunch of boasting, until it happens that they both chase each other around Ireland, turning into different animals, different shapes. And this is what happens here. Um, how Gwion Bach drove him away and where she had stationed him. And so Caridwin rushed out of the house in a frenzy in pursuit of Guyanbach, And the story says that she saw him fleeing swiftly in the form of a hare. So Guyanbach has already turned into a hare. Caridwin turned herself into a black greyhound and pursued him from one place to another. Finally, after a long pursuit in various shapes, and the translator mentions that in the other versions of the story, all of these transformations are listed. Uh, he turns into a hare. She pursues him in the shape of a greyhound. He escapes into the water in the shape of a fish. She continues the chase as an otter. He takes to the air as a bird. She flies after him as a hawk. And at last he descends into the barn where there is a stack of winnowed wheat and turns himself into one of the grains. And that is what our author at least keeps here. Finally, after a long pursuit in various shapes, she pressed him so hard that he was forced to flee into a barn where there was a great pile of winnowed wheat. There he turned himself into one of the grains, and what Caridwin did then was to change herself into a tufted black hen. 
And the story says that in this form, she swallowed Guyan Bach into her belly. She carried him there for nine months, at which time she got deliverance of him. But when she gazed upon him after he had come into the world, again being a mother, she could not in her heart do him any physical harm herself, nor could she bear to see anyone else do it. In the end, she had the prince, she had the prince, she's already calling him the prince, she had the prince put into a coracle or a hide-covered basket, which she had fitted snugly all around him, and then she caused it to be cast into the lake, according to some books, but some say he was put into a river, and others that she had put him into the sea, where he was found a long time afterwards, as the present work will show when the time comes. And so obviously by the time that this story has been written down, and uh, by the time the oral version reached the scribe, uh, the, the local tale and the local traditions were familiar with the story of Moses being cast into the Nile, and they were uh, familiar with the corpus of biblical stories as well. And so now we will take up the tale of Taliesin proper. And here is the tale of Taliesin. In the days when Malwin Gwynedd was holding court in Castel Degnawe, there was a holy man named Kibi living in Mon. Also in that time there lived a wealthy squire near Caer Deganwe, and the story says he was called Guidno Garanhir. He was a lord. The text says that he had a weir on the shore of the Conway, adjacent to the sea, in which was caught as much as ten pounds worth of salmon every eve of all hallows. The tale also says that Gwydno had a son called Elfin, the son of Gwydno, who was in service to the court of the king of Malguin. The text says that he was a noble and generous man, much loved among his companions, but that he was an incorrigible spendthrift, as are the majority of courtiers. As long as Gwydno's wealth lasted, Elfin did not lack for money to spend among his friends. But as Gwydno's riches began to dwindle, he stopped lavishing money on his son. The latter regretfully informed his friends that he was no longer able to maintain a social life and keep company with them in the manner he had been accustomed to in the past, because his father had fallen on hard times. But as before, he asked some of the men of the court to request the fish from the weir as a gift to him on the next All Hallows' Eve. They did that, and Gwydno granted their petition. And all of a sudden, we are in an entirely different universe. As the translator mentioned, uh, the tale of Guyan Bach takes place in the mythic past. The tale of Taliesin takes place in historical time. You might say that the characters in the tale of Guyan Bach are mythic archetypes, while the characters in the tale of Taliesin are sort of 
what you might say, uh, popular conceits, the kind of characters that you would assume to meet in a popular tale or a literary tale. And we can see evidence of something that isn't quite mythic but is more literary going on here. And uh, just the character of Elfin feels more human and less like a myth or someone out of folklore than anything that I think I've shared here so far from the Celtic myths. So let's see what happens to him. His father has fallen on hard times and he doesn't have as much money to spend around with his friends and so they go fishing and what happens? And so when the day and the time arrived, Elphine took some servants with him and came to set up and watch the weir which he tended from high tide until the ebb. When Elphine and his people came within arms of the weir, they saw there that neither head nor tail of a single young salmon. Its sides were usually full of such on that night, but the story says that on this occasion he saw nothing but some dark hulk within the enclosure. On account of that he lowered his head and began to protest his ill fortune saying as he turned homeward that his misery and misfortune were greater than those of any man in the world. Then it occurred to him to turn around and see what the thing in the weir was, and immediately he found a coracle or hide-covered basket, wrapped from above as well as below. Without delay he took his knife and cut a slit in the hide, revealing a human forehead. Now remember, when we last left Guyanbach, he was not human. Um, he was, what was he? I don't even remember what he was. Uh, he was the, the, the offspring of a hen, and he was put in the coracle on the water, and now, in this story, he is entirely human. As soon as Elphine saw the forehead, he said, Behold, the radiant forehead, i.e., Tal Yesen. To those words the child replied from the coracle, Tal Yesen, he is. People supposed that this was the spirit of Guyanbach, who had been in the womb of Caridwen. After she was delivered of him, she had cast him into fresh water or into the sea, as the present work shows above. He had been in the pouch, floating about in the sea, from the beginning of Arthur's time until about the beginning of Malguin's time, and that was approximately 40 years. And that paragraph is what ties the two stories together. And it is easy to imagine that at one point, everything I'm about to read was separate from the tale of Guyanbach. And all you really needed was uh, that paragraph to link them together. This seems to be how these stories work. They, I won't say they're completely interchangeable, but they are interchangeable nonetheless. If someone finds a good piece of a story that they want to use here, they find a way to make it fit over there. And this idea of the child and the coracle immediately speaking, and he's about to recite poetry as well, seems to be in a long tradition of children and especially sometimes even of babies, 
getting the better or of just being more intelligent or of being more impressive than their human counterparts. My favorite version of a story like this is from uh, one of the early stories of the Buddha, which says that when he was born, he, you know, he sort of leaps out of his mother's womb and immediately walks to the four, he walks to each corner of the room that he was born in, and I believe he announces his own divinity, something like that. Uh, wonderful little stories about uh, special children. But of course, the scribe who took down the tale of Taliesin uh, will have none of it and immediately says, Indeed, this is far from reason and sense. But as before, I will keep to the story, which says that Elphine took the bundle and placed it in a basket upon one of the horses. Thereupon, Taliesin sang the stanzas known as Dehudnant Elphine, or Elphine's Constellation, saying as follows. And what follows is a full-page poem that I will only read the last two stanzas of, since there's a great deal more poetry from Taliesin to come. This is part of what he says. Elphine of the cheerful disposition, meek is your mind. You must not lament so heavily. Better God than gloomy foreboding. Though I am frail and little, and wet with the spume of Dylan's sea, I shall earn in a day of contention riches better than the three score for you. Elfin of the remarkable qualities, grieve not for your catch. Though I am frail here in my bunting, there are wonders on my tongue. You must not fear greatly while I am watching over you. By remembering the name of the Trinity, none can overcome you. And that is one of my favorite things. Although I am frail here, in my bunting, there are wonders on my tongue. And it's nice that in uh, the first stanza that I read from, it mentions God, uh, the Christian God, as well as the old Celtic, uh, I don't know if you would call it a deity, but a character or superhuman character named Dylan. And in the second stanza that I read from, it mentions the Trinity. These things are all sort of finding room in the same stew. And just as the beginning of the tale of Taliesin began with a sort of uh, folk happening every Hall All Hallows' Eve where you could catch a salmon, now we are moving into an event that takes place during Christmas. And it says this, Together with various other stanzas which he sang to cheer Elphine along the path, from there toward home, where Elphine turned over his catch to his wife, and she raised him lovingly and dearly. And from that moment on, Elphine's wealth increased more and more each succeeding day, as well as his favor and acceptance with the king. Some while after this, at the Feast of Christmas, the king was holding open court at Naganwi Castle, and all his lords, both spiritual and temporal, were there, with a multitude of knights and squires. Their conversation grew as they queried one another, saying, and following are their, their sort of boasts. And I just wanted to say here, it happens on Christmas, 
A great many stories of this kind happen on Christmas. The one that I'm thinking most about is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. That is where Arthur's court is having a Christmas feast, and that is when the Green Knight appears to offer his challenge. But then I thought of all of the romantic comedies and all the holiday movies that happen on Christmas that we know of so well that we grow up seeing. The same sort of uh, motive, you might say, is behind setting a, st setting a story on a holiday like that. It's a time for people who don't usually see each other or come into contact with each other to come together. And always that kind of coming together um, brings about unexpected events. This seems to be just a basic of this kind of storytelling. And this is what uh, the conversation of the, uh, the Lords is saying that day. Is there in the entire world a man as powerful as Melguin, or one to whom the Heavenly Father has given as many spiritual gifts as God has given him, beauty, shape, nobility, and strength, besides all the powers of the soul? And with these gifts they proclaimed that the Father had given him an excellent gift, one that surpassed all of the others, namely the beauty, appearance, demeanor, wisdom, and faithfulness of his queen. In these virtues she excelled all the ladies and daughters of the nobility in the entire land. Besides that, they asked themselves, whose men are more valiant, whose horses and hounds are swifter and more fair, and whose bards more proficient and wiser than Malguin's? And for some reason, when I was reading this to present here, I remembered an episode in Ken Burns' history of jazz, where the narrator talks about the academic uh, music historians in the early 20th century, wondering where it is that the American Bach will come from. And I can never remember who it is. Uh, either Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington is about to be born or is coming up at the beginning of this episode. And there's just a wonderful line in there somewhere about how none of these people were looking for the American Bach in jazz music, but that is where it was. And of course, whose bards are more proficient and wiser than Malguin's? They have no idea exactly what it is that they're asking for, uh, because it is not at the court, that person. And it says, at that time, poets were received with great esteem among the eminent ones of the realm. And in those days, none of whom we now call heralds were appointed to that office, unless they were learned men, and not only in the proper service of kings and princes, but steeped and skilled in pedigree, arms, the deeds of kings and princes, of foreign kingdoms, as well as the ancestors of this kingdom especially in the history of the chief nobility. Furthermore, each of these bards had to have their responses readily prepared in various languages, such as Latin, French, Welsh, and English, and in addition, be a great historian and good chronicler, be skilled in the composition of poetry, and ready to compose metrical stanzas in each of these languages, 
On this feast, there was in the court of Malguin no less than twenty-four of these. And chief among them was the one called Heinen Fard, the poet. And so, after everyone had spoken in praise of the king and his blessings, Elphine happened to say this, and you can imagine he said it after having a little bit to drink. Uh, indeed, no one can compete with a king except another king, but truly, were he not a king, I would surely say that I had a wife as chaste as any lady in the kingdom. Furthermore, I have a bard who is more proficient than all of the king's bards. And this leads to a, uh, a nice little digression here where everyone seems to forget that uh, that Elphine has insulted the king's bards. The first thing he's done is insult the queen. And they put Elphine's wife to the test. And there's a nice scene there where Elphine is put into prison and they put his wife to the test and she knows that they're about to do this because the, uh, because the baby, Taliesin, tells her what is going to be going on. And they're trying to get Elphine out of prison. And let me see here. And what ends up happening here is that Elphine stands up for himself and knows that his wife is actually extremely virtuous. And the story says that the king became more outraged at Elphine for standing so firmly against him in the matter of his wife's fidelity. And as a result, the king ordered him to be imprisoned again, saying that he would not gain release from there until he proved true his boast about the wisdom of his bard, as well as about fidelity to his wife. And I should say there's a nice bit of comedy here. Um, the man that they send to to seduce Elphine's wife, uh, it, the story says that he was one of the lustiest men in the world, and that neither woman nor maiden with whom he had spent a diverting moment came away with her reputation intact. But to take the story back up, Elphine is back in prison, and he won't give up talking about his wife or his bard. And those two, meanwhile, were in Elphine's palace, taking their ease. Then Taliesin related to his mistress how Elphine was in prison on account of them, but he exhorted her to be of good cheer, explaining to her how he would go to the court of Malguin to free his master. She asked him how he could set his master free, and he replied as follows, with another poem. I'll only read two stanzas from it again. I shall set out on foot, come to the gate, and make for the hall. I shall sing my song and proclaim my verse, and the Lord's bards I shall inhibit. Before the chief one I shall make demands, and I shall overcome them. May there be neither blessing nor beauty on Malguin Gwennet, but let the wrong be avenged, and the violence and the arrogance, finally, for the act of Run, his offspring, and that is the one who was sent to seduce the wife. Let his hands be desolate, let his life be short, let the punishment last long on Malguin Gwened. And after that he took leave of his mistress, and came at last to the court of Malguin Gwened. 
The latter, in his royal dignity, was going to sit in his hall at supper, as kings and princes were accustomed to do on every high feast in those days. And as soon as Taliesin came into the hall, he saw a place for himself to sit in an inconspicuous corner, beside the place where the poets and minstrels had to pass to pay their respects and duty to the king, as is still customary in proclaiming largesse in the courts on high holidays, except that they are now proclaimed in French. And that is another example of how this story now takes place in historical time. Just that sentence, that this custom is still going on uh, in the courts on high holidays, except now, since the French are everywhere, uh, they have to say it in French. And so again, this is not ancient or mythic history, it is historical time. And so the time came for the bards or the heralds to come and proclaim the largesse, the power and the might of the king. They came past the spot where Taliesin sat hunched over in the corner, and as they went by, he puckered his lips, and with his finger made a sound like blarum blarum. And those going past paid no attention to him, but continued on until they stood before the king. They performed their customary curtsy, as they were obliged to do. Not a single word came from their mouths, though, but they puckered up, made faces at the king, and made the blarum blarum sound on their lips with their fingers, as they had seen the lad do earlier. This sight astonished the king, and he wondered to himself whether they had had too much to drink. And so he ordered one of the lords who was administering to his table to go to them and ask them to summon their wits and reflect upon where they were, where they were standing, and what they were obliged to do. And the lord complied. But they did not stop their nonsense directly. So he sent to them again, and a third time, ordering them to leave the hall. And finally, the king asked one of the squires to clout their chief, the one called Heinen Fard. And this all seems to me to, they don't, they know what they should say to the king, but it comes out as nonsense or just as noise. Uh, the king seems to have gathered around him a bunch of lackeys and yes-men who seem to be showing the the emptiness of ritual and bureaucracy if it goes too far sometimes, if there isn't someone like Taliesin coming in the middle of everything. And I should say, I think by this time, the, the, uh, the legends have it that Taliesin is by now 10, 11, 12 years old, maybe 13, but it's still pretty incredible the poetry that he sings. The squire seized a platter and struck him over the head with it until he fell back on his rump. And from that spot he rose upon his knees whence he begged the king's mercy and leave to show him that it was neither of the two failings on them, neither lack of intelligence nor drunkenness, but it was due to some spirit that was inside the hall. And then Heinen said as follows, O glorious king, let it be known to your grace that it is not from the pickling effect of a surfeit of spirits that we stand here dumb, unable to speak properly, like drunkards, but because of a spirit who sits in the corner yonder, in the guise of a little man. Whereupon the king ordered a squire to fetch him, 
he went to the corner where Talius had sat, and brought him thence before the king, who asked him what sort of thing he was, an important question, what sort of thing he was, and whence he came. Taliesin answered the king in verse, and spoke as follows. Official chief poet to Elphine am I, and my native abode is the land of Cherubim. Then the king asked him what he was called, and he answered him saying this, Johannes the prophet called me Merlin, but now all kings call me Taliesin. Then the king asked him where he had been, and thereupon he recited his history to the king, as follows here in this poem. And it strikes me that this whole setup can, can seem almost comical, or it is comical. It can seem light. It can seem like a farce. But then you get to into the poetry that Taliesin offers, and especially with this, the uh, where he was, it's a sort of um, I've been everywhere, man, uh, Johnny Cash, for the uh, for Wales uh, in the Middle Ages, spanning the Hebrew Bible, British, Irish, Roman, and Greek history, a sort of also I guess a Forrest Gump of uh, Middle Ages Wales. This is at least to me, incredibly moving. Uh, can't find the right word for it. Um, just what he says here. Uh, Taliesin says, I was with my Lord in the heavens when Lucifer fell into the depths of hell. I carried a banner before Alexander. I know the stars' names from the north to the south. I was in the fort of Gwydion in the Tetragrammaton. I was in the cannon when Absalom was killed. I brought seed down to the Vale of Hebron. I was in the court of Don before the birth of Gwydion. I was patriarch to Elijah and Enoch. I was head keeper on the works of Nimrod's tower. I was atop the cross of the merciful Son of God. I was three times in the prison of Arianrod. I was in the ark with Noah and Alpha. I witnessed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I was in Africa before the building of Rome. I came here to the survivors of Troy. And I was with my Lord in the manger of oxen and asses. I upheld Moses through the water of the Jordan. I was in the sky with Mary Magdalene. I got poetic inspiration from the cauldron of Caridwen. I was poet harper to Leon Lichlin. I was in Gwynfrin, in the court of Sinfelin. Uh, in stock and fetters a day and a year. I was revealed in the land of the Trinity, and I was moved through the entire universe, and I shall remain till doomsday upon the face of the earth. And no one knows what my flesh is, whether meat or fish. And I was nearly nine months in the womb of the witch Caridwen. I was formerly Guianbach, but now I am Taliesin. And wherever that poem comes from, it just gives me goosebumps just reading it out loud. Whether it is a compilation, uh, a grab bag of stuff, that uh, an editor or an inspired rewriter put together 
whether it is a single poem that someone wrote that ended up uh, being used in various places and found its perfect spot here. I do not know, but that is uh, uh, incredible. And it goes on, and this is the part of the story of Taliesin that is told mostly in uh, through Taliesin's poetry. And the story says that this song amazed the king and his court greatly. Then he sang a song to explain to the king and his people why he had come there and what he was attempting to do, as the following poem sets forth. And it says, Provincial bards, I am contending. To refrain, I am unable. I shall proclaim in prophetic song to those that will listen. And I seek that loss that I suffer, Elfin, from the punishment of Ker de Ganwi. And from him my lord will pull the binding chain, the chair of Ker de Ganwe. Mighty is my pride, three hundred songs and more are the songs I shall sing. No bard that knows them not shall merit spear, nor stone, nor ring, nor remain about me. Elfin, son of Gwydno, suffers torment now neath thirteen locks for praising his master bard. And I am Taliesin, chief poet of the West, and I shall release Elfin from the gilded fetters. After this, as the text shows, he sang a song of succor, and they say that instantly a tempestuous wind arose, until the king and his people felt that the castle would fall upon them. Because of that, the king had Elfin fetched from prison in a hurry, and brought to the side of Taliesin. He is said to have sung a song at that moment that resulted in the opening of the fetters from around his feet. Indeed, in my opinion, it is very difficult for anyone to believe that this tale is true. But I will continue the story with as many of the poems by him as I have seen written down. Following this, he sang the verses called Interrogation of the Bards, which follows herewith. What being first made Alpha? What is the fairest refined language designed by the Lord? What food? What drink? Whose raiment prudent? Who endured rejection from a deceitful land? Why is a stone hard? Why is a thorn sharp? Who is hard as a stone and as salty as salt? Why is the nose like a ridge? Why is the wheel round? Why does the tongue articulate more than any one organ? And then, following the interrogation of the bards, he sang a series of verses called The Rebuke of the Bards, and it begins like this. If you are a fierce bard of spirited poetic inspiration, be not testy in your king's court, unless you know the name for Rimin, and the name for Ramin, and the name for Rimiad, and the name for Ramiad, and the name of your forefather before his baptism. You might as well add, uh, what is the, what do you call the sound of one hand? Clapping. What did your face look like before you were born? All that Zen, wonderful Zen stuff. And the name of the firmament, and the name of the element, and the name of your language, and the name of your district. Company of poets above, company of poets below, my darling is below, neath the fetters of Ariandrud. 
You certainly do not know the meaning of what my lips sing, nor the true distinction between the true and the false, bards of limited horizons. Why do you not flee? The bard who cannot shut me up shall have no quiet till he come to rest beneath a gravelly grave. And those who listen to me, let God listen to them. And after this follows the verses called the satire of the bards. Minstrels of malfeasance make impious lyrics. In their praise they sing vain and evanescent song, ever exercising lies. And it goes on for a while until the very end, which is very, uh, a nice ending to this poem, where he is, uh, let's see, what is he doing? He is interrogating the bards, he is mocking the bards, and now he is just uh, mocking them even more with satire. Fish swim, bees gather honey, vermin crawl, everything bustles to earn its keep, except minstrels and thieves, the lazy and the worthless. I do not revile your minstrelsy, for God gave that to ward off evil blasphemy. But he who practices it in perfidy reviles Jesus and his worship. And it says, After Taliesin had freed his master from prison, verified the chastity of his mistress, and silenced the bards so that none of them dared say a single word, he asked Elfin to wager the king that he had a horse faster and swifter than all the king's horses. And Elfin did that. So we're right back to uh, bragging who has the better this, who has the better that, who has the faster sports car in this case. Um, but in this case, it is that most royal of animal, the animal that the king rides into battle with, the animal that the king uh, goes on hunt with. Uh, a boy is challenging the, uh, the quality of a sovereign's horses. And we'll see what happens as a result of that. I'm sure you can guess. So that on the day, time and place determined, the place known today as Morpha Rianed, the king arrived with his people in 24 of the swiftest horses he owned. And then, after a long while, the course was set, and a place for the horses to run. Taliesin came there with 24 sticks of holly, burnt black, he had the lad, who was riding his master's horse, put them under his belt, instructing him to let the, all the king's horses go ahead of him, and as he caught up with each of them in turn, to take one of the rods and whip the horses across his rump, and then throw it to the ground. Then take another rod and do in the same manner to each of the horses as he overtook them. And he instructed the rider to observe carefully the spot where his horse finished and throw down his cap on that spot. The lad accomplished all of this, both the whipping of each of the king's horses, as well as throwing down his cap in the place where the horse finished. Taliesin brought his master there after his horse won the race, and he and Elfin set men to work to dig a hole. When they had dug to the earth to a certain depth, they found a huge cauldron of gold, and therewith Taliesin said, Elfin, here is payment and reward for you for having brought me from the weir and raising me from that day to this. In that very place, 
there now stands a pool of water, which from that day to this is called Cauldron's Pool. And after that, the king had Taliesin brought before him and asked for information concerning the origin of the human race. Now, my impression is that at the feast, it was Taliesin's job not just to free Elfin, but also to do it by insulting and defeating. You don't even hear what their response is, just defeating and humiliating the other poets and the other bards. And that is enough to get his master freed. What he's doing now is defeating the king proper. And so what do you do after someone has defeated you in that way? And what do you do if that person is a poet and a bard, but ask him for information concerning nothing less than the origin of the human race? And forthwith, he sang the verses that follow here below, and that are known today as one of the four pillars of song, and they begin as follows. Here begin the prophecies of Taliesin. The Lord made, in the midst of Glen Hebron, with his blessed hands, I know, the shape of Adam. He made the beautiful, and the court of paradise from a rib he put together a fair woman, Seven hours they tended the orchard before Satan's strife, most insistent suitor. Thence they were driven through the cold and chill to lead their lives in this world, to bear in affliction sons and daughters, to get tribute from the land of Asia. One hundred and eight was she fertile, bearing a mixed brood, masculine and feminine, and then openly, when she bore Abel and Cain, unconcealable, most unredeemable, to Adam and his mate was given a digging shovel to break the earth to gain bread, and shining white wheat to sow, the instrument to feed all men until the great feast. And we wonder what that verse means concerning the feast that has just happened. And shining white wheat to sow, the instrument to feed all men, until the great feast. Angels sent from God Almighty brought the seed of growth to Eve. She hid a tenth of the gift so that not all did the whole garden enclose. But black rye was had in place of the fine wheat, showing the evil for stealing. Because of that treacherous turn, it is necessary, says Sadwern, for each to give his tithe to God first from crimson red wine planted on a sunny day, and the moon's night prevails over white wine, from wheat of true privilege, from red wine generous and privileged, is made the finely molded body of Christ, son of Alpha. From the wafer is the flesh, from the wine is the flow of blood, and the words of the Trinity consecrated him. Every sort of mystical book of Emmanuel's work Raphael brought to give to Adam. When he was in ferment above his two jaws, within the Jordan River fasting, Moses found to guard against great need the secret of the three most famous rods. Samson got within the power Tower of Babylon all the magical arts of Asia land. I got, indeed, in my bardic song all the magical arts of Europe and Africa. 
and I know whence she emanates, and her home and her hospitality, her fate and her destiny till doomsday. Alas, God, how wretched, through excessive complaint, comes the prophecy to the race of Troy. A coiled serpent, proud and merciless, with golden wings out of Germany, and by now it, this is all fragmented, and it reads in the way that we th imagine prophecy to be, a sort of gnomic puzzling thing. Um, it almost could be pulling uh, quatrains out of a hat. It shall conquer England and Scotland, from the shore of the Scandinavian Sea to the Severn. Then shall the Britons be like prisoners, with the status of aliens to the Saxons. Their lord they shall praise, their language preserve, and their land they will lose, save wild whales. Until comes a certain period, after long servitude, when shall be of equal duration the two proud ones. Then will the Britons gain their land and their crown, and their foreigners will disappear. And the words of the angels on peace and war will be true concerning Britain. And this is the last sentence of the story. And after this he proclaimed to the king the various prophecies in verse concerning the world that would come hereafter. And again, this, this comes from Patrick Ford's translation of the Mabinogi and other medieval Welsh tales. An extremely... Uh, it is like holding gold in your hand. It is an amazing book. And anyone who has enjoyed listening to this or just had their, their curiosity piqued by this uh, should go out and get a copy. We are lucky to have this translation into English. And it makes me wonder about the um, the scribe I mentioned in the very beginning. The scribe from, what is it, uh, around the 16th century or so. Uh, from the 16th century, the person who keeps interrupting our story and saying, well, the story says this, the story says that. I don't believe this, but I'm going to put it down. I'm going to add this. I'm going to uh, keep it in our history because it seems important. Um, I've been struck by this a lot lately as I prepare for the next episode after this one on the Celtic myths. I can't think of another culture that that quite did this other than the what the what literary Celtic literature was able to do. And that is you have a dominant and a new culture and a new religion come in and you have them replace the quote-unquote replace the paganism of the past and yet there's a realization that the stories from this past from this past that had many gods and many stories that the people are not willing to give them up and that even the monastics people who centuries earlier might have felt guilty about reading uh, their Virgil and their Ovid in Latin. Um, now you have these monastics in uh, medieval Wales, Ireland, Scotland, and Britain realizing the literary power of these tales and they see the importance of keeping them, of keeping them alive. 
And I wonder what the other versions of this story are. I have not seen them. And and it just seems that we are lucky not just to have Patrick Ford's translation of it, but we're lucky to have this version of it by this skeptical scribe who keeps breaking in because it is about storytelling as much as it is about the actual story that's being told. Our reactions to it, our skepticism, our joy and our befuddlement at the details, the kinds of details of plot that pass us by, but that may have made people back then chuckle or nod. Um, and I go back to what I said at the very beginning of this episode. There seems to be something very deep and very primal, very important, a point that has been made thousands of times over the years in story and song. And that is when the, when the child upends the adult world with their own wisdom. There seems to be something marvelous to that. And this, what I read today, just happens to be the Welsh version of that story. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.